Prepare to experience the strongest radio allowable by law. Secrets will be revealed. Myths dispelled. From the studio gym where excuses never apply. It's Superhuman Radio with your host, Carl Lenore. Hey, we have no music. Uh, we're starting the show today uh, in a different fashion because uh, something went wrong with the server literally five minutes before the show started. So I can't run any commercials today. So you're lucky. This is a commercial-free show. I'm joined by my good friend Daniel Larego today, and we're going to talk about something that's going on that a lot of people don't even realize, and that is there are dog food wars going on. There are wars going on between companies that have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are and a group of people who are trying to spread the word, like Daniel, uh, Rodney Habib, and Dr. Karen Becker, uh, who are trying to spread the word about what's going on and how dogs are being fed foods that are not good for them. How are you doing, Daniel? Not too bad, man. It really is uh, great to see you, even if virtually. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I know. Well, you're, you're like a jet setter. You're traveling everywhere now. And, it, it, and for this purpose, what we're talking about today, right? This is why you travel all the time. Indeed, yeah. It, the most recently, um, our team was down in Brazil, uh, chatting with uh, veterinary oncologists, general practitioners, and um, dietitians who are starting to develop a real interest in understanding the metabolic impact of commercial dog foods. So, just for so people don't may not know who you are. This may be the first time they're they're seeing you and hearing you. Talk about your background with Epigenics uh, Foundation. Sure, sure. sure. So as you know, Carl, Epigenics Foundation really grew out of a shared interest between um, my good friend and colleague, Ron Penna, who's the CEO of Quest Nutrition, um, and a real interest in trying to understand sort of the intersection of metabolism and disease and, and to really try to get to a point where we could um, have a better fix on how nutrition can act as an intervention in both preventing uh, and mitigating disease progression. And part of that um, trajectory centered around a, a project called Keto Pet Sanctuary, which looked at how uh, the work of Dr. Thomas Seafried and, and Dr. Dominic D'Agostino uh, in brain cancer patients and rats using a ketogenic diet to address various forms of cancer could be applied in a canine model. And it was really Keto Pet Sanctuary that kicked off Ron's vision for trying to understand, okay, how does nutrition play a role in addressing disease with a focus on cancer? And, and, they, and you guys made great strides. I mean, you were effective at actually um, – freezing tumor growth in dogs and actually uh, taking dogs who who were told that they had maybe days, weeks, months to live and actually having them live very, very much longer lives as a result of the nutritional interventions that you that you uh, uh, used with these dogs. Right. Yeah, that's accurate. And while, you know, it, it's not controversial to observe that, you know, Cancer and, and the various tumor models uh, that are out there is a very, very challenging disease to address. But what we learned in pretty short order and what we're continuing to learn now is that really and truly nutrition can play a central role 
in slowing down disease progression and, of course, in, in the best cases, uh, actually acting as an intervention to reverse disease. And, and so that's a great segue to, to today's discussion. Yeah. Um, and that is that uh, for those who have never seen the documentary Pet Fooled and you own a pet, especially a dog, you need to watch it. It'll bring you up to speed with some of the things that we're going to talk about now. But the reality is that many of the diseases that, that dogs are suffering from today, and this is diabetes and diseases related to diabetes. This is actually autoimmunity uh, and diseases related to autoimmunity and actually cancer um, can all be tied back to what pet food has become today. Now, in, in the Reader's Digest version is that there was a period in time where pet foods were better for dogs. Uh, however, because of the need for metal during the war, they, they had to come up with alternatives to canning food, and hence kibble became popular. And kibble actually was a gold mine because if you, if you heated this food to such high degrees, denatured the, the protein in it, removed all the moisture, it was shelf-stable for a decade. So this was a big win, but the reality is that dogs eating these types of foods, it destroys their health, it destroys their kidneys. This is unequivocal. Even though the majority of pet food companies are pushing back at this notion, we can tie many of the diseases that dogs suffer from today back to the foods that they're eating, right? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point here, and this is in a way what sort of makes this issue so interesting is it parallels in so many respects what's transpiring with human nutrition. And right. Maybe, right. And, and maybe a good point of departure is to recognize, and, and this has sort of been a well-studied issue, if you, if you go back to the 1970s, uh, the average lifespan, the average uh, length of life of a golden retriever was 17 years old. Today it's nine. And this is kind of an interesting way to set up the issue because there's layers here. Um, and you can look at that and you can say, well, you know, it's breeding, it's genetics, it's the environment. And certainly looking at those things has value. But to not recognize the impact that nutritional choices uh, have had on dogs, you know, over the last 40 years would be really missing something that's central to this issue. Yes. And so here's where we come up with what you guys have been doing. So you just came back from Brazil. Uh, and you told me an interesting story that the Brazilian veterinarian community is embracing this because they are not, uh, uh, let's say, bogged down by what the pet food industry has done here with veterinarians. They, you know, pet food industry is quite is quite enmeshed with the veterinarians. They fund a lot of stuff. They do a lot of things, and so dog food and pet and veterinarians, they kind of are good chums, good friends. And there's this attitude about not, uh, you know, kind of uh, changing the status quo. But when you go to Brazil, you said the veterinarians are like, okay, we get it. We see now, what do we do? Yeah, that's accurate. And, and part of that is because at least today, and, and that of course could change, the major concerns that are out there, your Del Monte, your Colgate Palmolive, your Mars, your Nestle, they're not as strong uh, in uh, South America as they are here. 
And so there's a, a greater openness. That's what we encountered when we went down there. There's a greater openness in the veterinary community uh, to explore nutritional programs for dogs that really and truly comport with how dogs eat in the wild. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road here and why this issue is not uncomplex. And the reason I say that is because industrial manufacturing processes for pet foods actually perform a very needed agricultural service. And what that is, is that stems from the rendering process. So to add clarity and context here, uh, if you or I eat a steak or, or a piece of chicken, right, that animal has been slaughtered for human consumption. Now, the waste product that is taken away from that process is what actually ends up in pet food and it's rendering. Rendering is just a term for high heat processing that actually is the first step in creating the powders that ultimately are agglomerated and extruded uh, to make a piece of pet food kibble. So that recovery of waste and its reintroduction into the food supply for pets means that it's not going into landfills uh, or it's not being thrown away. So that's an important process for agriculture. However, the real question is, is does making food that way actually serve the nutritional needs of dogs and cats? And that's where the issue starts to get a little bit thorny. And, and I'll expand a bit on that for you. So if you take a step back and you observe, for instance, what zoologists and you know evolutionary biologists can observe, which is for the last 100,000 years, canine and feline, evolutionary biology uh, and nutrition has come from either scavenging or uh, by, by killing a bird or a rodent or a, a rabbit or something like that. So for the last 100,000 years, it's only been in the last 80 years and really and truly only in the first world where a dog or a cat has even had the opportunity to consume a high heat processed, extruded, in some cases, irradiated, subsequently refortified piece of high glycemic, in other words, high insulin mm. response, high carbohydrate kibble. That is a very modern phenomenon. It's right. not something that's, that's happened until the, the most recent epic. And again, only in the first world. In the third world, you know, there's not a lot of dog food for dogs. They they scavenge or, or eat what they, what they catch in the wild. And it's really there that you can start to begin to explore, okay, does feeding something that comes out of a bag, uh, is that appropriate uh, for a canine or a feline? And obviously it's not. You know, the idea that we – and, you know, this is not unique to dogs when we talk about animals. Uh, I remember reading an article about the San Diego Zoo and uh, mm -hmm. a, a black bear, Ursus americanus, that had developed heart failure. This is not seen in the wild. Uh, there were other animals in zoos that are developing diseases that we typically see in humans exclusively. All of these animals are being fed commercially produced animal feeds, chow, that are produced by the right. big companies, Purina and, you know, Purina bear chow. I mean, I'm being facetious, but really right. this is what it is. And so... To tie this into what we just learned about human food, uh, what we've learned recently 
through a series of really well done studies on advanced glycation end products is that the problem with processed meats today, so we thought it was nitrates and nitrites. Now we're not so sure because, you know, there's naturally occurring nitrates in celery. Celery is good for you. Nobody's talking bad about celery. Um, they're starting to discover that it may not just be the artificial agents that are in processed meats, luncheon meats, and so on that are tied to things like leukemia in children definitively. It may actually be the fact of something that you just pointed out, Dan, and that is that all of those um, processed meats are high heat processed to render them into a form that they can then extrude into a sausage or a bologna skin or whatever. And, and, and so now we're starting to think, wait a minute. It, we know about advanced glycation end products. We know about high heat cooking of meat that it causes, a, it causes the, uh, the, the uh, accumulation of nitrosamines and other agents that are known carcinogens. And wait a minute, we're doing this to pet food all along as well. What do you think about that? Well, you hit on a phenomenal topic uh, because it's not just the glyphosates, it's the acrylamides, it's the mycotoxins. Additionally, you know, the rendering process, yes, it imposes a, a heat function. It's pretty high. It's, it's well above 250 degrees Fahrenheit. But in fact, a, a pet food may be exposed to up to four heat processes during its production. And what also happens there is you have a tremendous denaturing of the protein, the amino acid structures in the protein change. Uh, uh, additionally, you have um, a big challenge with peroxidation of fats, which we now know, particularly in the human literature, uh, is a precursor to all kinds of disease processes. So just the, the function of getting a pet food to market introduces all kinds of, of uh, uh, carcinogens. And there's also toxicity that goes with that. And what I mean by that is a lot of these rendered, these powders that are put together to compose the pet foods, a lot of them do come from overseas, uh, from China, from other places. And oftentimes when you expose those raw constituents to third-party lab testing, what you find are above threshold amounts of arsenic and lead and mercury and things like that. So there's a challenge there as well, not to mention the ultimate challenge to metabolism. Because if you, if you look at what a dog eats in the wild, they may consume about 16% carbohydrate, you know, on an annual basis in their diet, right? right? If you subtract for fiber to get a net carbohydrate, they're probably well below 10%. Whether you're buying the cheapest kibble, whether you're buying the most expensive kibble, they're going to be somewhere in the 40 to 60% range of carbohydrate. That is a massive, massive sugar load to an animal who, A, yeah. while they've adapted in probably about the last hundred years. To this is what we've done to humans. We've, we've, made, yeah. we've, we've created acquired diabetes by making right. people eat a high carbohydrate centric diet. Uh, you know, yeah. look at the food pyramid. We've done it to dogs too now. Yeah, that, that's accurate. And while, you know, you can, you can look at a modern dog and say, well, in the last hundred years, yes, they produce a little bit more pancreatic amylase than they might have in a prior epoch. Uh, it's not nearly sufficient to deal with these, this massive carbohydrate load that, that comes from 
uh, th these kibbles. And so that's a pretty big challenge when it comes to thinking about, okay, what's appropriate for a canine or feline metabolism. Right. Right. You know, and, 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 it, and it even gets murkier. Um, so wait a minute, before I go there. So now yeah. I want to ask you, we, 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 we're raising some issues here. People who love their pets are going, but what am I to do? So what are some of the early steps that a person can, if I say, okay, I'm not going to feed my dog kibble anymore. I get it. My dog, you know, you and I joked, right. no farmer has ever opened his door, looked out on his fields of wheat or corn and gone, those damn wild dogs ate all my wheat again. Right. Dogs right. are, you know, there's abundances of wheat. There's abundance of, of corn. Deers eat it. Dogs don't. Why are we even feeding our animals, these carbohydrate products. And as uh, Dr. Jeff Galini points out, it's an inexpensive way to create calories uh, uh, for these dogs. So what is a person to do if they say, okay, I get it. I don't want to feed my dog science diet anymore. What do I do? Sure. Where do they go? Well, a very simple first step. And, and, you know, the reason I, the reason I offer this and put it on the table is switching from a kibble based diet to what, what you might call a species-appropriate diet or ancestral diet uh, can cause the cost of, of feeding your dog or cat to go up. But one of the biggest things that you can do just to improve baseline nutrition is to take whatever you're feeding uh, your dog in terms of the kibble, remove a significant portion of it, and replace that with a fibrous vegetable, like say uh, some lettuce or some green beans. That has a huge impact from, on metabolism for two reasons. One is you're lowering overall caloric density. And as we know, whether it's a flatworm, a bird, a primate, or a dog, uh, restricting calories or controlling calories has a pretty big effect on health and longevity. Right. Additionally, by introducing a little fiber, even though dogs and cats don't have the same saculated colons that humans do, you can get a, a, a mild butyrate-producing effect in the lower gut, which does mediate insulin response. So adding in a little bit of fiber buys back uh, a lot when it comes to controlling glycemic response and also ensuring um, that insulin mediation is taking place to some degree. What if money isn't a big deal for me? Should I go to my local butcher and say, can I buy scraps from you? Yeah, that's that's one place that people like to start. Also, thankfully, even though it's a very, very currently a very, very small portion of the market, there are commercially available raw dog foods which are formulated to comport with a species appropriate meal program. Um, there's not a lot of brands out there, but there's about three or four uh, that are doing good work in the space. And while it is, you know, it is true. Uh, that their products are more expensive. Whenever people switch over them, they see big changes in their dogs, not the least of which is a change in body composition uh, and a change in how their eyes look, how the coat looks. Um, so it's, within a couple weeks, you start to see pretty dramatic changes in your dog. If you're going to do it yourself at home, there are some challenges that go along with that. In other words, you want to make sure if you're sourcing your own meats and veggies, that you also balance the micronutrient portion of a meal program. And sometimes that can be a little tricky. The great news is, is wow, you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, you go on the web. Um, there's a ton of raw feeding groups out there that really dive deep into the details of this, uh, 
uh, of this realm. So it's not hard to get help if you want to go down this path. Right. Okay. Now I want to talk about our second topic. Sure. And that is people who choose to be vegan who then decide to feed their dogs a vegan diet. Um, we are seeing uh, a greater uh, surge mm-hmm. of vegan zealotry today because of the anti-meat movement. And uh, people feel that, well, if, if vegan diet is good for me, it's good for my dog too. Well, what do you say to these people? Well, there, there could be a rationale for that. And in the same way that there could be a rationale for any nutritional program for a certain period of time, right? The same thing could be true of of humans. It may make sense for somebody to eat a vegan meal program for a period of time. The question really becomes, is that the most sustainable nutrition program over the lifetime of the dog? And particularly given the choice set currently between a meat-based kibble and a plant-based kibble, it's really a lateral move because you're still feeding kibble. You're still feeding 40 to 60% carbohydrate. You're still feeding something that has uh, advanced glyphosate end products, that has acrylamides, that has all kinds of quote-unquote natural flavors like cadaverine and putrescine in it. So in terms of the metabolic and health impact on the dog, it's really a lateral move. The real question, the real choice set or the real question is, do I feed my dog any kibble, whether it's a meat-based kibble or a plant-based kibble, as opposed to fresh food, which of course comports with what they would eat evolutionarily. I think the other part to this too is to really have a serious conversation about, you know, what dogs are. And what I mean by that is as a species, zoologists and biologists don't have any problem calling felines obligate carnivores and canines scavenging carnivores. That is what they are recognized to be. Interestingly, that's controversial. Today, uh, many, um, veterinarians and many medical professionals will say that dogs are omnivores. And while it's true, or one can sort of see that dogs can survive on high carbohydrate meal plans, the real question is, do they thrive? And that's where the rubber meets the road, right? right? Is that what they should be eating rather than what they can be eating? And so that's something that, of course, if you, if you do recognize as as scientists, as as zoologists and biologists do, that dogs are carnivores, then boy, it's a steep hill to climb to make the case that an animal should be eating a vegan meal program for anything other than some short period of time. Um, And you you could make a case for that just in the same way that you could make a case for, say, for instance, a dog eating a ketogenic diet or, or a diet that induces nutritional ketosis for a period of time because you're trying to get a a very specific metabolic response. And interestingly, both a vegan diet and a ketogenic diet share the same property of restricting methionine, methionine being a a catalyst in certain forms of disease progression. So there's some, you know, some interesting things to explore, but the broader issue is, is this what dogs and cats should be eating their whole life? Well, Well, I I mean, I mean, isn't it, isn't the simplest thing for us to do? to just look at wild dogs, dogs in the wild, and say, what do they eat? When dogs are given the opportunity to eat what they want to, what do they eat? I mean, they usually eat other animals. They usually chase deers and and attack them. I mean, dogs are amazing. They hunt in packs. 
they, they uh, they're they're an apex predator when they're in a group. I mean, they can they can take down a bear, a group of dogs, and then and they will eat on it. I mean, I've I know that dogs uh, will eat grass when they want to regurgitate for whatever reason that they want to throw back up, but I I've, I don't see dogs, and I've seen dogs hunting. I've seen wild dogs. I've seen koi dogs. I see them, you know, eating deer carcasses, uh, whether they've killed it the day before and they're coming back. Or as you said, they're scavenging. I, I don't see them eating, you know, turnips and stuff right. out of people's gardens. So why, yeah. why, why is it? Why is it? Why is it so hard for veterinarians to look at the evolution of the breed and go, "Yeah, they don't eat vegetables." So well, let's stop I, feeding it them. Yeah, I think it's where really the onus of the argument lies. And there's an opportunity to kind of flip that, right? So the the classic criticism of this conversation for medical professionals, veterinary oncologists, is, hey, show me the literature on raw feeding. Show me um, what what the science is that that demonstrates that, in fact, uh, feeding raw foods is better than kibble. But I I think it's actually the inverse of that. It's incumbent upon the pet food manufacturers to demonstrate that the kibble is appropriate. Right. Why the last 80 years of manufactured high glycemic carcinogenic, high heat process, toxic commercial pet food should somehow supersede the last 100,000 years of canine evolutionary biology. So while, yes, I, I agree in principle that it's always great if we have more science, I think it's, it's tough to make the case that somehow intrinsically, because there's some science on commercial pet foods, that they supersede what a dog or a cat uh, would have eaten, you know, for the vast overwhelming majority of their evolutionary history. Yeah. I, I gotta, I gotta just uh, inject a uh, plug here for a sponsor, <laughs> even though we don't have spots running today. I, I have right, to that's plug. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm really excited about this spots too. It's called simple contacts. I've been wearing contact lenses since I was 14 years old and I inevitably always run out of contacts and then find out my prescription is expired. Well, Simple Contacts actually has an app, or you can use your computer, and you can actually do a contact lens exam in the comfort of your home, at the airport, anywhere. Uh, And it's really an amazing process because this doesn't supersede going to the eye doctor and having a full exam for glaucoma and all that sort of stuff. But if you just need contact lenses and your your prescription has run out, you can go to simplecontacts.com dot com forward slash shr and save 20 percent off uh a uh, having your contact lens prescription renewed and you know, your contacts uh, uh filled and it really is an amazing feature and they have this is you'll get a kick out of this because from your quest days they have real customer service people that text you the minute that you're you start the process and walk you through it and it's not a robot it's not one of those things where it it looks for words and then it sends you back a canned response. Right. I, I was like, is this a real person? And she was like, yeah, this is, I, I just want to make sure you have a good experience. So it's very, very cool. Uh, it's uh, simplecontacts.com forward slash SHR. You get $20 off um, if you try it. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm really, really impressed with them. Again, it's not designed to replace a visit uh, to the uh, eye doctor. That's a totally different thing. I just had my retina scan. Uh, I'm 60 years old now. I want to make sure that my eyes are healthy. And so, you know, it's important to do that from time to time. But if you just need your contact lens prescription filled, you download the app, 
you're on your way. Simplecontacts.com forward slash SHR. Use the code SHR. Let them know that you learned about them from this commercial-free version of Supremo Radio because my computer has crashed. So there you go. So you, you, you've been on this bandwagon for a while now. I mean, you've been telling people, talking to people. You've been lecturing. You've been traveling. Um, what is going on with the American dog food companies today? Are they going... Okay, the cat is out of the bag, no pun intended. There's an opportunity for us to step up and do something good and give people what they want to buy, or are they just pushing back going, as you you know, no, there's no evidence that this is true. And Yeah, they, so it's interesting because you have to look at the economics of pet food. It's, it's a multi-billion dollar global industry. And remember, the margins on pet food are phenomenal because you're effectively using waste products to, to make the foods. And it's not just that this is something that's also important to know. It's not just the waste product that comes from animals that are sent to slaughter for humans. And that's another part of the vegan issue, which is really important to address, which is oftentimes vegans make the point, hey, if we didn't feed uh, meat-based kibbles to dogs and cats, we would save so many thousands of animals being slaughtered. The reality is is not, not that. Uh, because those animals are sent to slaughter on behalf of people, and it's the waste products that's used in pet food. But the other part of this is so important to note is that uh, what can also go into rendering is stockyard diseased animals, in other, in other words, animals that die of diseases in the stockyard, right. additionally roadkill, and euthanized horses, dogs, and cats. All of that is legal to go in to pet food. And also, even if you're feeding a plant-based pet food, it's legal for expired vegetables um, uh, and, and um, agricultural waste to go into pet food. So it's like a fresh head of lettuce and, you know, a fresh uh, carrot is not really what ends up in plant-based kibbles or vegan kibbles. And so it's important to note that as well. The other part to this is, while it's true that fresh pet food year over year is the fastest growing vertical in pet food, as, a, as part of the total economy, it's like 1% or, or right. 2%. So here's what's interesting, is that if you look at the response in marketing from big pet foods, there's been some acknowledgement. So, for example, Purina makes a, a, a kibble that contains MCT oil in it. In recognition of, hey, you know, we, we may need to address uh, some issues of metabolism in dog. Additionally, a lot of these big pet food companies are very quietly, uh, through investment partners, taking positions in raw uh, pet food manufacturing. And part of that is because, you know, these are companies that, that do have intelligence and d- that do look at market trends. And they can see, hey, this is a, this is a fast-growing vertical. Um, even if every uh, pet parent out there in the world uh, decided to feed their their uh, dogs and cats fresh food, it would still take a while for the major concerns out there uh, to adapt to that. And there's some there are some issues when it comes to manufacturing a pet, uh, mm. fresh pet foods that do need to be addressed uh, in terms of pathogen risk uh, and in terms of what really constitutes fresh, because there's all kinds of uh, processes out there that are counted as raw or fresh, but in fact, upon further analysis, uh, are not. So those are some of the the industry challenges um, that still have to be addressed. Yeah. Uh, I want to plug one uh, raw pet food right now. Hmm. It's called Valiant Pet. 
Yeah. And I've heard some really great things about Valiant Pet. And I have, I have friends who are involved with that company and they're very, very serious about curing diseases in dogs uh, and, and obviously cats as well. Um, is a product like that expensive? It is. It is. Any, any product that is fresh and frozen or fresh and freeze-dried will definitely uh, bring a higher price point uh, out, out there in comparison to uh, less expensive kibbles, even if they're premium kibbles. Uh, anything that is in the fresh uh, or raw category, immaterial of how it's processed, uh, will ultimately call for, for a higher price point. You know, I, I guess part of me thinks we're overcomplicating it. But then again, I think to myself, we don't have butchers any longer, right? Uh, you get your meat at the grocery store and the grocery store doesn't even want to give um, vegetables that are not rotten yet, but just not saleable anymore to like soup kitchens. They're like, no, no, there's liability in that. If somebody gets sick, then it's our fault. Because if we still had butchers like your mom and my mom used to go to to buy chicken and beef and pork and stuff like that, they they threw those scraps in a in a in a, a, a bucket and a, a truck came and picked it up and they probably used that to make sausage and spam out of. But I mean, you could at least go to the butcher and say, can you give me uh, some fresh scrap meat that you just cut up today? I'm going to feed it to my dog. Even the bones, as long as the bones aren't cooked, right. they don't splinter. The dogs can chew the raw bones too. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, for, for people that, that want to feed fresh at home, Obviously, uh, acquiring the meats yourself is, can lower the cost dramatically, particularly if you've got a big dog. Uh, you know, if you've got like, say, uh, an Irish wolfhound or you've got a, a Great Dane or an Italian Mastiff, you know, those are dogs in the 100 to 150 pound uh, range. So feeding, you know, raw commercial food, boy, the ticket price can add up there. Uh, so going out and acquiring, you know, your own turkey, your own beefs, things like that, that uh, you can assemble and put together yourself, that can bring the price down significantly. What about, okay, so what about those who hunt, right? So maybe you get a doe tag and you get a buck tag and you take two deer and you 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 process and you freeze. Taking that meat out of the freezer, letting it thaw and giving it to your pet, that shouldn't be a, a bad thing, right? Well, I mean, there are people that do that. Um, and in fact, there's a whole style of feeding called prey model, that comports with precisely what you describe, where small game will be given uh, to the animal or very, very lightly processed game, like, you know, say a freshly butchered uh, deer or cow uh, will be offered as food. Again, the big challenge of all of this is to make sure that as you're going through that process, that you do balance the micronutrient load for the animal, which is really important because um, that's something that oftentimes that's the piece that's missed. So adding back in, uh, trace minerals and vitamins is a big part of the sort of the do-it-yourself. How, how would you do that? How would you do that? Would you just give them some vegetables, give them some kale or some broccoli along with it? Or what would you do? Sure. You, there's really two categories of choices. The simplest and probably the most convenient is to just buy a synthetic vitamin and mineral mix. You can get it off of, you know, Amazon, something right. like that. Um, some people like to do everything naturally. So instead of, you know, uh, synthetic iodine, they might get some seaweed, they might do some bone broth or calcium, things like that. You can kind of put it together naturally. Obviously, right. there's more work, more time, and <coughs> doing it that way. Yeah. Do you, now, you have a dog, 
Yeah, I've got, I'm, a, I'm a dog and cats guy. So Oh, uh, okay. So you have a cat as well. Yeah. yeah. And I know your, your dog's name is Patience, right? Uh, temper. Temper. Temper, Very temper, yeah. temper. Temper. Okay. And so uh, one of those virtues. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so what do you feed to temper? So we, we pretty much rotate the protein sources. He'll eat uh, ground turkey, ground chicken, ground bison, ground beef. Um, and we just sort of rotate through those, those protein choices, which, you know, as you'll observe, we'll have, you know, slightly differing uh, fat loads that go with it. And then we'll typically put in uh, a small fiber source, um, maybe some lettuce or some green beans, and then balance out the remainder of the complex with uh, uh, very simple micronutrient and, and vitamins that are, you know, uh, appropriate a, for canines. In a, yeah, like in a powder or something. That you yeah. Have. And, and when, when, you, when you, now has Temper always eaten raw or was there a period of time where Temper was eating kibble? Well, I, I'm assuming that he was eating kibble prior to, to me rescuing him. Okay. Um, because he did go through the shelter system where there's, I don't, I don't know if there's a shelter that feeds fresh food. Uh, so I assume he got kibble prior to that. But what's right. interesting is as soon as I got him on to he still weighs the same 15 pounds uh, that he weighed when I got him, but he's a very different looking dog. He's very lean. He's very muscular. He, even though he's a small dog, he's like a, a dachshund mix. Um, he, he looks like a, a little mini, uh, power lifter. You, you yeah. can see the musculature in his chest and in his hindquarters. Um, even though really his, his weight hasn't ever fluctuated more than a pound up or down from 15 pounds since I, I got him. When you first introduced this type of feeding, assuming that he was, and that's a pretty valid assumption. He was eating kibble before. Did he... Did he take to it right away or was there a, a period of time where you kind of had to wait for him to get used to it? Yeah, there was a little bit of a transition period and that's very common in a lot of dogs. One of the easiest ways to expedite that transition period is to control calories very judiciously and also exercise the dog very rigorously. That stimulates hunger. It cuts down on the time it takes for a dog to cut over from, from kibble to raw. Um, and it also makes sure that they are uh, getting the, the maximal metabolic response from the food. It, it really can't be overstated how important uh, rigorous exercise is for, for dogs and cats. Um, let's just touch on cancer again before we sure. kind of pull the plug on this, because I know that's where your big focus is right now. Yeah. So what, what is emerging in canine cancer and, and dietary uh, therapeutics uh, that you're seeing? Sure. There's major challenges in this area. I mean, one in two dogs will get cancer. And what we're also seeing is that dogs are getting various forms of cancer, whether it's mast cell or squamous cell or hemangiosarcoma, they're getting them younger and younger on balance. And so that is a, that is a big challenge. And so what, what we're looking at is trying to understand, hey, can feeding a very low glycemic, fresh, meal program really from the start of life, can that not only extend life, but lower the acquisition of disease? Um, and there's several meta studies going on right now that are looking at that. Additionally, there's some great work being done uh, in Finland at University of Helsinki by Dr. Anna Bjorkman that's a, doing a comparative feeding study between kibble-fed dogs 
uh, and raw fed dogs to look at not just metabolic response, but disease acquisition over time. We know that um, extreme dietary interventions like famine mm-hmm. have uh, inherited epigenetic effects in offspring. Um, so I wonder if there are inherited epigenetic effects in the offspring of dogs fed kibble that is the reason why their offspring is getting sick younger and younger and younger because these yeah. these these genetic switches have already been turned on and you're just carrying it out now that they're eating on their own. So, so here's what's so fascinating about what you just brought up. And of course, this is anecdotal, but it's intriguing. Breeders who generation to generation feed their dogs raw, most importantly, feed the breeding pairs raw, notice that within about three generation disease acquisition goes down. Yeah. So just in the same way that, you know, delete disease proliferation can go up, go up. you know, dep- you make some changes to nutrition, generationally it can go down. Now, unfortunately we don't have hard, you know, rigorously controlled beagle studies to demonstrate that this is, a, is the case. Um, but there are several breeders out there who have noticed this phenomenon in their lines of dogs who are fed uh, consistently fresh food and, and uh, their litters as well. It makes perfect sense because what, what, what the mother and father eat, the breeding pair eats, prepares the offspring for the environment they're going to be born into. Yeah. So it's, it makes perfect sense. Is there anything that you want to finish up with before we uh, pull the plug on this uh, interview? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the, if, there's, if there's a couple of things, a couple of takeaways for, for, for folks out there is to just think about, almost do an assessment of what makes sense when it comes to feeding their doggy or kitty at home. And, you know, there's no pet parent in the world that doesn't want to make the best choice they can on behalf of their, you know, companion pet. And so, you know, while not everybody can make every move that they might want to do the ultimate version of a nutritional protocol, they can always make improvements by doing very simple things. If you're feeding kibble, remove a little bit of that kibble, replace it with a fresh fiber source and see if you don't experience significant changes uh, in, in your dog's health and energy and vitality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Um, when I was, uh, 17 years old, I bought my first dog. It was a Hungarian Vishla. His name was Theron. And I bought him from breeders who were Hungarians who lived mm. in New, upstate New York, uh, John and Biber Norton. And they, when I bought the dog, I bought the dog very inexpensively because he was Monorchid, only one testicle dropped, yeah. so he couldn't be a show dog. He, and that's all he ever ate. And he lived to be 18 years old. And he was, people couldn't believe he was 18 when he was 18. And we, all we ever fed him was raw chopped meat and cooked rice. That's all we ever fed him. And that's all they ever fed any of their dogs. So she, they obviously understood this coming from Hungary and breeding dogs that the raw meat was important for this animal. Yeah. 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 It was a very expensive dog to feed, but he gave us, uh, I mean, 18 years of joy. And I remember he, he could, he could leap 
like uh, six, seven feet high. I mean, he used to leap over a chain link fence like a gazelle. And and people would go, how old is that dog? And I'd be like, oh, he's 16. He's 16 years old. He, like, he had no fat on him. Like you said, all muscle, no fat, very, very little gray whisker. I yeah. mean, it was it's amazing. So I guess I kind of experienced this on my own firsthand, but I wasn't really paying attention when it was happening. So. Daniel, thanks for being on the air with me today, even with all the technical difficulties. Uh, sure, I'm sure that people are going to get a lot of good information from this. Nothing but good times, Carl. Thanks, man. Keep fighting the good fight, brother. And we'll see everybody yeah. Monday with a fully functioning episode of Superhuman Radio. We'll see you then. All right. Bye now. Bye.